0: The title comes from Abigail's foolish husband, and his name was? Nabal, Nabal and it meant fool. fool. First Samuel 25 is about Nabal and Abigail, and it's a great subject. It's a great chapter for this subject. Each woman marries a fool, but she's one too, because we're all sinners. Here we speak of men that sin against God. We're not talking just about being foolish because all men are foolish at times, and so are all women. We're talking about men that want their wives to sin. What's a wife to do when her husband wants her to sin? When her husband sins himself? When her husband wants the children to sin? When her husband takes liberties, she dislikes. When her husband is less competent than she? What what should a woman do? The study's valuable for all of us because guess what? While the woman is under the authority of a husband, all of us are under authority as well. So everything that I'm about to say applies to all of us in the five spheres of authority. There are husbands and wives, but there are also masters and servants. There are kings and citizens. There are parents and children. And there are pastors and churches. What should servants do under a foolish master? What should children do under a foolish parent? What should members do under a foolish pastor? How important is it when choosing your rulers? There are four wife problems when this subject comes up. Ignorant women do not know what to do. Foolish women think submission makes all okay. As long as I obey him, God's going to see my obedience to him, and though he's asking me to do something that's wrong, I'm doing something that is right, so he's responsible for the wrong. I'm responsible for the right. God's going to exonerate me. Intimidated women are afraid to do what is right if their husband is pressuring them to do something that is wrong. Self-righteous women think they should take over anyway because, after all, they're the more spiritually-minded person in the marriage. So there's four wife problems. But there's four husband problems. Ignorant men think that wives should always obey them. And that's ignorance. That hasn't read the Bible carefully enough. Foolish men think that God endorses their rules. God doesn't really care about your rules if they're against his rules. Amen. Insecure men fear a holy wife that wants to obey God when in fact a holy wife that wants to obey God's the best kind of a wife a man could ever have. Amen. Arrogant men do not care about right or wrong, so this issue doesn't even affect them. They can't even comprehend it. There's two other problems. Foolish women often advise women who are in a difficult marriage to love, obey, and pray. Well, that's not nearly enough. That's not good enough. God doesn't respect that. That's not godly advice. Every woman already knows that. Why don't you give her something that's helpful? Think Elizabeth Rice's book, Me, Obey Him. Elizabeth Rice, she was Elizabeth Hanford after she married Dr. Hanford, who was the pastor of Southside Baptist Church in this city. She wrote a book entitled Me, Obey Him. And in that book, she taught that a woman is exonerated from any wrongdoing if she just submits to her husband. We had a family in this city that wanted to join our church because our church taught and practiced everything they believed that a church should teach and practice. But they wouldn't come here because I taught that a wife should disobey her husband when her husband wants her to sin. Partial pastors never preach on sup- such subjects. Can you thank Joel Osteen's book, Your best life now that's selling in the bookstores deals with this subject? Let's look at important verse number one. This is Abigail speaking to David in 1 Samuel 25 and verse 25, when she came to his aid and provided him food for his men. Let not my Lord, speaking to David, I pray thee, regard this man. Now is that disrespectful or respectful about her husband? it's disrespectful because he didn't deserve respect in a matter of sin and at the bottom it says there are times to disregard honor to a husband then she says my husband is a man of Belial a man of Belial he's a devilish man he's not just foolish he's wicked he's evil some men may be foolish others are devilish and sometimes a woman's going to get caught in a marriage to a man that's a devil He doesn't fear fear God or love God or the things of God. And so she tells David that. And she said, his name's Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. I'm married to a fool. You say, is it ever right to say something like that when you're dealing with a matter of sin and a matter of life and death because whose death was about to result if she didn't accomplish her purpose right now? Nabal Nabal and every every man in that household, David had said everyone that pisses against a wall, and girls and women find that difficult to do, but everyone that could piss against a wall was going to be killed by David because of the rude treatment his servants had received from Nabal. So she was actually saving his life, but this is how she talked about him, because he's a fool, admit it. Now the problem here is her father was cruel. You know, when a woman gets ends up married to a fool, it's because her father didn't protect her. She said, But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord, whom thou didst send. When you sent your messengers for food, I didn't see them, or I would have helped them. I don't care what he wanted. I know right and wrong, and I will do right myself. And she had a load of food right there for the men. This is important verse number one in the Bible for women to know that there's a verse that describes what they should do when they're married to a fool. She called him a fool, she disregarded him, she told David to disregard him, and she went and did what he didn't want done for David and his men, because it was right, and it was to save life, and it was righteous, and David was God's man, so she did it. Important verse number 2, is 1 Peter 3, 5 and 6. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves. Does Abigail fit in that long clause I just read? Amen. Amen. But it's about a different woman in particular, even though it says women. It's about godly Christian women of the Old Testament. It's about Sarah. It's holy women. If you want to be a holy woman, a godly woman, a great woman in the sight of God, this is how you do it right here in this passage. In the old time, in the Old Testament, the holy women who trusted in God, these were believers. That's why it says these things. This is how they adorned themselves. This is what made them beautiful. This is how Sarah got into Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith because this is how she treated her husband. She feared him and was in obedience to him. Being in subjection unto their own husbands. A godly holy woman is subject and obedient to her husband. She knows that God made the man and God made this world a man's world. And she was made for the man. And so her world revolves around her man's world. Sarah knew that and did that. And this is the example that's given here. And holy women all do that. The foundation of marriage is obeying a husband. A marriage can get along just fine without love, but it can't get along without a wife being in submission to her husband. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And remember from Genesis, it tells us that Sarah called Abraham Lord in her thoughts. Not in speech or in a note, but in her thoughts. As she talked to herself about Abraham, she called him Lord. And the Bible pulls that out. And this is one of our 16 examples of an argument being made from a single word of the Bible. I hope you can see it. Which word would it be? Lord. Sarah gave the great example of reverence, whose daughters ye are. You are just like Sarah if you obey your husband and think of him as your Lord. He's not your partner, and he's not your friend. He's your Lord. If after being your Lord, he's your friend, that's okay. But first, he's your Lord. Whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. What is doing well? It is being in subjection to your husband, reverencing him as Lord and obeying him, but not being afraid with any amazement. Amazement in the Bible, and amazement in a good dictionary, says to be fearful to think and do what is right. You're bewildered, you're overwhelmed, you're intimidated, you're scared, so you don't know how to do right or wrong because you're so afraid of your husband. Your fear of your husband should never get a woman to the place where she doesn't know what to do because her fear of God should be far greater than her fear of her husband. Wives are to obey and reverence. We teach a husband's authority as much as anyone in the world. We teach it because the Bible plainly requires it. It's a command for wives to obey and reverence their husbands. We don't care what the world thinks, and it does think differently than we do. Marriage isn't a partnership. The man's to rule. It's more like a kingdom. And she's his queen or princess, whatever he wants to call her, and he's her lord. Only God's authority is absolute, my brethren, and this ought to be such a simple point to us. The reason I'm preaching this is because I promised it after I was asked so many questions because women had dilemmas in their mind and there shouldn't be a dilemma. This is a very simple issue. We all face it in all five spheres of authority and you're going to face it again. And you ought to have your children and your wife established in the fact that God's authority is the only one that is absolute. Absolute means it's never violated for anyone. This is a simple rule, but it takes courage to do it, and I will grant that to a woman who's under an overbearing, oppressive husband, and he wants her to do something that is wrong and to take a stand in that home. Due to the intimacy of that relationship, it's a difficult thing to do, but it's the right thing to do, and therefore it's the only thing to do. The Bible allows no, no authority in this world greater than God's. The apostles said, we ought to obey God rather than men. If you can memorize that little short clause, that's all you need. Right. We ought to obey God rather than men. And that was for their lives. Right. Now they got a whipping on this occasion, a beating, but it was for their lives. This is to be always kept. We ought to obey God rather than men, no matter what relationship it is where you're being tested. Right. Right. We, we reject any authority that calls for sin. The Bible says, fear the king. Does it say that? Amen. It does. But Daniel and his friends disobeyed it. Can you tell me about the chapters? Was there a problem in chapter 1? Daniel wouldn't eat what the king required. Was there a problem in chapter 3? That involved the fiery furnace. Daniel's three friends would not obey the king. There's a problem in chapter 6. The king signed the decree and put his Persian stamp of approval upon it that no man could pray for 30 days to anyone but him. Did Daniel keep it? Not a chance. Are you supposed to fear your mother in the Bible? Does the Bible actually say, fear your mother? Yes, Yes, it does. But Asa demoted his mother from being queen and destroyed her idols because she was guilty of idolatry. Does it say to fear your father? Yes. But Jonathan and Michael saved David alive by lying, deceiving, and helping David against their father. You say lying and deceiving? Of course, to save life for the sake of God's righteousness. It applies to kings, masters, parents, and pastors. When they're in error and trying to get you to sin, you stand up for the Lord God, and you're not worried about the future because He's going to take care of you. Hus- husbands may have less authority, is something I said if a couple of months ago, than the other authority spheres. and the, You'll see the reason I'm making this point is husbands should be disobeyed sooner than any other sphere of authority. It's the point I'm suggesting to your mind. Elisha cursed 42 kids to death for calling him a bald head. How many husbands did that in the Bible when their wife said that they didn't have much hair left? Okay, not very many. I didn't see any hands. David had Shimei killed for cursing the king. How many women have cursed their husbands? And there's a reverse in the Bible that says a woman's to be put to death when she curses her husband. Masters beat servants for poor performance, and they could even beat them to death. But can you beat your wife and beat her to death as long as she survives 24 hours if you come home and supper's not as good as you thought it should be? Or you took her to bed that night and it wasn't as good as you thought it should be? But I'm telling you, if you told your servant to hoe the garden and it wasn't as good as it should be, you could beat him for it. Because God knew that he was your money and you would not destroy your own assets. The point I'm trying to make is a husband is not God. There shouldn't be a conflict in your mind when your husband's trying to get you to do something that's wrong. Fear does not justify sinning. If fear makes you consider sin, then you're amazed. And you're violating 1 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. We don't want to rationalize about a situation. We want the revelation from God as to what we should do. How was Rahab justified, my brethren? What does it tell us in James chapter 2 about Rahab's justification before God? She was justified by works, not by faith. But what work was it that got her justified? She sent the spies another way, which is another way of saying... She lied to the king of Jericho about the spies from Israel that came in to spy out their city. No wife ever faced what Daniel's friends faced when Nebuchadnezzar was so messed up because they wouldn't worship his golden image. Yet they told the king they were not careful in the matter. We are not careful in how we're about to answer you. And whether our God delivers us from your fiery furnace or not, we don't really care, but we're not going to worship your golden image. Are you all familiar with those words? Those are men of faith, and there have been women of faith, and women have laid down their lives, lost their homes, lost their children, lost their livelihood, and starved in the woods. But there's a God of the fiery furnace that will deliver them. It's the same God that went and found Hagar in the wilderness. and She said, Thou God, seest me. And she renamed Abraham's God as the God that took care of Hagar as well. Let's go back and consider amazement again. Not afraid with any amazement. It's the condition of being mentally paralyzed. It's the loss of presence of mind. It's being driven stupid. It's stunned or stupefied. It's by a blow. It's being out of your wits. It's bewildered, confounded, confused, perplexed. That is what the word amazed means. And the reason is because you're supposed to do well And if your husband's trying to keep you from doing well or he's trying to get you to do something that's wrong, then you're not to be afraid of him to where you'll be confounded or confused as to what you ought to do. Afraid here is godly fear in marriage. When it says you're not afraid with any amazement, you are afraid of your husband because the second verse of this chapter tells you to be. But you're not afraid with amazement. You're not bewildered about what you ought to do. God always comes first and your husband always comes second. Sarah feared Abraham, but she went against him and Ishmael. If you go back and read Genesis chapter 21, she gives us a great example of this. And let's look at some more about amazement. A wife does well by obeying in fear without sin. Because if you want to look up the word amazed in your Bible, there are some verses for you that will show you it means to be intimidated, confused, and bewildered as to what you ought to do. Peter was amazed by a maid. Look what it did to him. He denied Jesus Christ. And how many women have done that by their husbands threatening them or their children? The husband's an unbeliever in the case in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so that gives us the case. What about Abigail? She was a beautiful, wise woman, married to a fool. She knew Abel's, Nabal's wishes, but she disobeyed them anyway. Knowing he was drunk, she waited till morning. So you've got two things right there that are, that are good about what a wise woman does. First of all, she obeys God, not her husband. Second of all, she's very discreet and prudent and realizes that she doesn't want to go tell him that she's disobeyed him while he's drunk. She'll wait till the morning when it's worn off. God blessed her rebellion by giving her David as her husband, so she lived in comfort and pampered life and luxury for the rest of her life with a real man. What if she had loved, obeyed, and prayed only? Every single male in her estate would be dead. You say God wouldn't have intervened. No, he doesn't. He uses means. All the Jews would have been killed if it hadn't been for Esther doing what she did. When should a wife disobey? She should not steal something for her husband, so she should disobey when her husband wants her to steal. She should not sign a tax return with fraud in it. Every year... I shove the piece of paper at my wife and say, sign right here. She should not lie for him in any matter of sin. She should not watch a sinful movie with him. Church attendance is as important as sodomy. There isn't a difference in the Bible between sodomy and church attendance when it comes down to whether it's God's commandment or not. Church attendance, equivalent to sodomy, there's a not missing in that sentence. God did not leave the ranking of sins up to a woman. And he didn't leave the ranking of sins up to a man. God said, whatsoever I've commanded you, don't add to it or take away from it. Don't turn the left hand or the right hand. And the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that those that keep and teach the least of God's commandments are greatest in his kingdom. If God commands something, we do exactly that. Church attendance is commanded. Membership is a covenant with men and God and the church is the body of Christ and a whole lot more like I gave you a couple of months ago. Church attendance is important and a husband cannot keep a wife from attending and fulfilling her duties at the church that she's a member of where she believes that she is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no different than if he asked her to go have a sexual liaison with a woman. There's no difference. They're both... Against the God of heaven. What about matters of liberty? Matters of liberty are followed under authority. That means a wife's, matter, her ideas on liberty are to become her husband's ideas on liberty. That is how authority is upheld. You know, listen, if everybody got to decide how and when they would like to do things, then there wouldn't be authority in the world. Right. It'd be confounded immediately. A wife follows a husband as children do parents. In matters of liberty. That means God hasn't said anything about it. And there's a whole lot, list of those subjects, and I'm hoping you're wise enough with the good enough memories to remember them. That's why the Bible says in Genesis 3.16, thus her desire is to her husband. Because she's going to lose her life, and she's going to give it to her husband, and where he lives, she lives. What he wants for supper, she's going to get for supper. When they're out driving around, they're saying, where would you like to stop and get something to eat? She's going to end up eating where he wants to stop and get something to eat, unless he's a nice guy and says, where would you like to stop and get something to eat? Husbands disallowed wives' vows, just like fathers could disallow daughters' vows. Right. There's a whole chapter in the Bible, it's Numbers chapter 30, that when a woman made a free will offering to the Lord, and made a vow to the Lord, her father, if she was at home, or her husband, if she was married, could overrule that vow. She couldn't even worship God according to her desires if her husband didn't want her to do it at that time in the way she had vowed. There's a whole chapter about it in order for me to support what I'm saying here. God's word is not a liberty and it cannot be altered. What about her conscience? A conscience is important, but it's not God. Conscience limits us to matters of liberty. If you're going to bring that word up in a discussion, then it's a matter of liberty we're talking about because there isn't conscience involved With the Bible. It's black and white English print in a King James. Consciences can be taught to grow up. And so husbands are responsible to teach their wives consciences to grow up. Every one of your consciences is a reflection of the inputs you've had your entire life, along with God the Holy Spirit. Conscience is often an excuse for disliking a thing. Well, my conscience just doesn't allow me to do that when really she gets squeamish with the idea of something you're suggesting. And the reason I'm saying this is for husbands to be prudent and realize that conscience is an excuse like tears are when they start crying because you don't let them have their way. A wife can meekly ask if she has a conscience problem with something, and a husband can teach her or give in to her conscience if he's wise and he fears the Lord. He doesn't want his wife going against her conscience if she is severe, sincerely and honestly offended in her conscience. How should a wife disobey? Very carefully, cautiously, and soberly with prayer. That's how she should do it. We have an example, and that's Esther. She did it exactly that way. Right. She should approach her husband most respectfully, hear his answers, and examine them by the Scriptures. She should hear him out she might want to write rather than confront him. A husband might do better at work reading your letter rather than having you confront him to his face. Found that to work at times. Every other wifely duty, not with my husband, but I've found that to work sometimes with other wives. Every other wifely duty should be maximized. This is how a wife should disobey. Very carefully, approach your husband respectfully, hear him out, maybe write him instead of talk to him, And everything else in that marriage better be perfect. She should be maximizing her role as a wife. She should be patient, not impulsive or impudent. And before defying him, which is the last resort and should hardly ever occur, she should question and exhort and warn as she has an open door, as she has an opportunity. In this church, every woman's got a marriage covenant that she can remind her husband of, That he has promised in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to allow her to come to him and ask for redress of her grievances in matters of importance. A woman should never explode, threaten, separate, or such like. She can emphasize she will be doing everything else in the marriage perfectly. Consider Esther's prayer. Do you remember? How long did they fast and pray before Esther even went in to ask? Three days and three nights. Then she prepared a meal, and she couldn't get her courage up at the first meal, so she asked him back the next day, another meal. He was honored. He was flattered that his wife wanted to have this intimate session with him. She used great caution. That is all laid out for you in the Bible. We're talking about a king that could have had a bag put over her head in one second her head cut off. She was terrified. She told Mordecai that if I go in there and he doesn't raise his scepter, it's curtains for me. You've never had a husband anything close to that. You say, you don't know mine. (laughs) Yes, I do know yours. He's a little pansy in the garden compared to King Ahasuerus of the Persian Empire. And so am I. I'm a little puppy dog with a pitter-patter heart compared to that king. How about Bathsheba? Didn't she give us some wisdom? She found out that Adonijah was taking over the kingdom. David had promised her that it would be her son Solomon. What'd she do? She'd go in and slap him up because he was lying on his deathbed with an oxygen hose in his nose? Did she go in and tell him, I want to get you, I want you to get this straight right now? Or did she go in and fall on her face? Have you read it in the Bible? Do you know that I'm telling you the Bible? She fell on her face, and she didn't go in there and fall on her face. She called her husband her Lord on her face on the floor but did she have a friend standing out in the hallway of the hospital and what was his name his name was nathan the prophet is that a good combination that's a wise woman did she get her wishes absolutely who reigned next in israel king solomon Again, I want to say that writing might work. Confrontation in spirit or body provokes anger. If you're a woman that has a spirit that rises up, if you're what some people call choleric, don't you dare do that. You ought to get punched. You want to act like you want to fight? Then you should be fought. You don't ever do that. Don't confront your husband in spirit or body. A soft answer and perfect love should end fights because the Bible tells us that. What if it breaks up a marriage? God's doctrine's broken up many marriages. Are you trying to impress us? Only God's revelation counts, not sentimentality toward a marriage. And if you have children, that doesn't justify keeping the marriage together if your husband's trying to get you to do something that's sinful. Why don't you read Ezra, where they had a national day of divorce, and it tells us plainly that there were many children involved in those divorces. Do all to save the marriage, even if you're married to a pagan, and there's no one in this room married to a pagan. If he refuses her freedom, treat him like Nabal. Then he's a fool and disregard him. If he refuses her freedom, to obey God and keep his commandments. More about breaking marriages. We don't break marriages unless we're forced to by an unbeliever or a wicked, rebellious, carnal Christian that is forcing someone to sin against their will. Yet even though they've applied and used every effort at their means to try to find a compromise so that they can keep God's commandments... The onus must be fully on the unbeliever and, uh, and upon the rebel. The martyrs gave up much more than marriage, brethren. They gave up their lives. Jesus promised a sword in dear relationships, and I preached that to you recently. You're not alone if it were to break up your marriage. Others have, and God will provide for you. And I'm not recommending that. We keep marriages together at all costs except the cost of God's righteousness. What is a real man? A real man's David, who listened carefully to a housewife. He knows that two are better than one, even in wisdom. He remembers his marriage covenant to listen to his wife. Not all the time, and not when she's disrespectful, but when she comes to him meekly. Real men allow questions and admonition and warnings from time to time when the situation is right and it's done respectfully. Real men teach their wives to fear and love God most of all, even more than them. But what if he wants the children to sin? Depending on the situation, which each situation would have to be dealt with individually, tell them not to do it in private. Depending on the situation, appeal to him for them in private. You don't defy your husband in front of the children unless there is a matter of sin or life and death right then there on the spot. Teach your children the lessons of this study. That's one thing you can do. Pull your children aside and say, I want to show you a PowerPoint presentation. If the situation gets bad, then you can defy them to protect them. And if it gets worse, then you can get them away to safety. God expects you to. Some other thoughts. Oh, if there was anything in putting this together that I was gripped with, and my wife and the Lord know, that whenever I have to deal with a situation where a, wife is in a, where a wife doesn't know what to do in a marriage. I come back to one man at fault. And it's not the evil husband. It's not the Nabal. It's Abigail's father. Who in the world let Abigail marry Nabal? Right. A man that was Abigail's father. Don't you ever let that happen. Marry as high as you can spiritually men of character that will protect your daughters. What a horrible travesty in the life of Abigail because of a lazy father. A father that wanted a dowry. A father that was intimidated for a business connection. We don't know the details. But godly men protect their daughters. The number one man that has caused more pain and heartache and trouble for women in the world is lazy fathers. Lazy fathers. Love blinds girls. Parents have to save them, fathers and mothers. Godly wives maintain faith in God as supreme. They're always putting the Lord first. And godly men honor a wife's honest conscience, and they help her love the Lord. But what if my husband's stupid? You married him. Enjoy it. No one arranged your marriage. You say, why, are you, why would you even say something like that? Well, what if we had a president that way? Or what if you worked for a boss that way? He's still a president. He's still a boss, isn't he? Lots of smart women married men that are not smart. He deserves respect because God gave it to him for his office. Since he's your husband, make the best of it. God allowed this marriage of you, a smart woman, to a stupid man for your perfection. Or he wouldn't have allowed it. And for his glory. It doesn't matter if he's not as intelligent as you. He's in an office that you don't have. And in fact an office that you're under. What if he spends too much? You married him gladly. No one arranged it. Lots of frugal women have married spendthrifts. And it's painful. They hear the cash register every night while they're sleeping. They can't ever get away from it. Be as frugal as you can and do what you can to earn. Be patient for the time You can be as an Abigail. Wait for that opportunity where you can talk to your husband, possibly about the finances. God allowed this marriage for your perfection. I have the same answer for any one of these questions that might be thrown at me. What if he works too little? You know, he spends too much and he works too little. You married him, no one arranged it. Lots of diligent women have married sluggards. Continue to be diligent. Help him to read Proverbs if you have an opportunity to do so. Maybe you ought to leave it at his dinner plate. That is not a real suggestion. Pray for the pastor to do your dirty work for you. You could pray for the pastor. I hope he preaches sometime this year on diligence or at a men's meeting and really does a good job with it. And remember, God allowed this marriage for your perfection. But he misinterprets scripture. You mean at marital or family devotions? You mean when you're reading the Bible with your husband and he's reading it to you? Or when he's teaching the children the Bible, he misinterprets a passage once in a while? Bless and thank God, you have a man that's having devotions with your children. That's what you should do. If or when he asks, meekly offer an alternative interpretation for him. Trust the Lord to lead the pastor to correct him and he'll get corrected in time. But you thank the Lord that you have a husband that's doing that with your children. If not sin, forget it. If leading to sin, be Abigail then and approach your husband like Abigail approached David. Do you know that there's two extensive documents on our website that have helped women elsewhere with their husbands that I wrote years ago in response to a woman that wrote us anonymously and, and called herself... I just lost it. Concerned wife. Concerned wife. Concerned wife. There's two extensive documents because if you read First Samuel 25, you can pull out so many nuggets of wisdom on how a woman can approach an angry man the way Abigail approached both Nabal and David. Right. So you wait for an opportunity like that. But you be thankful that he's having devotions. That's the study for tonight on that subject you know what it comes down to? We ought to obey God rather than men. It's that simple. And it doesn't matter what sphere of authority it is. We ought to obey God rather than men. Three things tonight, brethren, as I send you home. First, how thankful we should be that the Lord has convicted us and shown us the perilous times of the last days, that that passage of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3 and 4 involves the decline and degeneration of, of Christians as they turn from the truth to fables and they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it, which brings us to point number two. The power of God's godliness is that we dress to avoid offense to Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God, that we dress for the glory of God, that we dress for the profit of others, not for our own profit. I hope that all of you will dress like Christian women, as this nation takes off its clothes. And then if anyone asks you or you get into a situation yourself, and we'll do all that we can to keep you from ever being in such a situation, a wife sometimes reaches a place where she's got to obey God and not her husband. And I hope that tonight's thoughts helped you form, think through how that actually happens. Stand with me.